people ask me all the time, you know, oh, what do you think about this brand doing this? Is that a greenwash? Or what do you think about greenwashes in overall? And I always say, my opinion doesn't matter. It's you developing yours that matter. So it's your search towards your favorite podcast that will make sense. Your uh, interpretation of a book you find online that will make sense. Because at the end of the day, those opinions are what will keep you attached to this conversation and make you do a little bit more each time. You're listening to The Sustainability Issue, a podcast about sustainable fashion and mindfulness. It is about calling out the worst practices of the fashion industry, the things that have led to the devastating impact fashion has on the natural environment and the human lives involved in the process. It is also about the people within the industry who are driving the change for the better. And finally, it is about you, about reconnecting to our nature as human beings and realizing the big impact our everyday actions have on the world around us. I'm Desi Gurgieva. I'm so happy that you're here and let's dive right in. My guest today is no other than Orsola de Castro. Orsola is a pioneer in sustainable fashion. She's co-founder and creative director of Fashion Revolution the largest global movement for transparency and accountability in the fashion industry, which started in response to the Rana Plaza factory collapse in 2013. Fashion revolution impacts millions of people worldwide each year, with 4.2 million taking part on social media last Fashion Revolution week alone. Ursula's career began in 1997 when she founded From Somewhere, her label that combines sustainable thinking with using luxury designer pre-consumer waste. In 2006, she founded Aesthetica, the first sustainability arena at London Fashion Week. Ursula is a regular international keynote speaker, educator and mentor. And most recently, she published her first book, Loved, clothes, lust. How the joy of rewearing and repairing your clothes can become a revolutionary act. Without further ado, let's jump, jump right into our conversation. Ursula, thank you so much for being on the sustainability issue today. You're a true pioneer in sustainable fashion, a co-founder and creative director of Fashion Revolution, a public speaker, mentor, educator, and author of the book, Loved Clothes Last. Your sustainable, sustainable fashion journey goes way back. You started your um, brand from somewhere in 1997 where you used offcuts to make your fashion pieces. And I was wondering, did you already then have the sustainability first approach in mind? No, actually not at all. Um, I think I have been brought up in a family that was careful um, and therefore a lot of this thinking and the way that I operate now did come um, instinctively for me, but when I started working in fashion, that wasn't my main objective. My main objective was more like thinking differently 
and looking at an industry that I knew was very hell-bent on wasting and mass production and all that, I just wanted to do something different. And I wanted to do something with a sense of humor. And the reality is that I was taking jumpers that were broken and at death's door. And with my own creativity, I was bringing them back to life. That was the concept that I was interested in. How I could use my own creativity as a service rather than as a disservice. So that was the beginning. Of course, I am very stubborn. So I only wanted to use secondhand. I only wanted to use discarded materials. I only wanted to use what other people didn't want. And in a very short time, I became aware that we were facing an environmental and social crisis within this fashion industry, which entirely belonged to the waste and accelerated disposal. So that at that point, my label also became um, somehow a way to fight this problem. I understand. That's amazing that you, you didn't even have this in mind and in the process of creating, you actually come, came across all the problems that existed already in the fashion industry. And since I have your um, book in front of me, with me, uh, Love Clothes Last, How the Joy of Rewearing and Repairing Your Clothes Can Be a Revolutionary Act, I'm going to jump right into this topic. Um, you say uh, you were approached by your agents to write a how-to for mending, and uh, you said you're actually a much better person to write a why-to. Um, so I was wondering, I mean, in the end, you did uh, both incredibly well. I love the book, and I think that uh, everybody should read it. I talked to a lot of people about it, and also to people who are completely outside of the fashion industry, who experienced a complete um, mind shift after reading it. Can you share more about the process of um, the book coming to life? Oh, I'm very flattered by what you've said. Um, I'm very excited. It was exactly what I hoped would happen for my book to, you know, to go from something that seems really, really simple, like how we wear our clothes, to get very, very deep. Um, I think of myself as a fashion thinker more than a maker. I think that even when I was making, I was thinking how to make and why I was making it like this. Um, but ultimately, I'm really not the best seamstress. You know, my, my daughter has a, 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 an organization called By Hand London. I mean, now she's a brilliant seamstress. I never was. Um, and, but I understand instinctively the importance of maintenance, longevity, and the creativity of being able to take something and change it. So what I really wanted to do was a book that made things possible via looking at your clothes, uh, this profound identification that what I wear is important, not for me, but also for the people who made it and for the resources with which it's made, for nature, from where those resources come from. And it's so important to me that we, I mean, at least I take clothes, I use clothes as a metaphor. Um, and it was important that people got that message that from the things we wear, we can show our respect to the people who made it and show our respect to nature and to ourselves by keeping it as long as possible and not make it turn into waste. 
So that was what I meant when I said this is a, a why to mend rather than a how to mend, because there's no point starting to mend really unless you understand. Well, no, it's not that there is no point, of course, there's always points, but it's better to start mending knowing that you're repairing not just your clothes, but you're getting deeper towards repairing a system. Now, the fashion system designed itself extremely deliberately to exploit people and nature. But somewhere along this 300 year history, it, it did break and it broke because it does not fit purpose. The purpose that we need right now is not what we are buying into. And so for me, it is absolutely vital that we, you know, that we put pressure on, on, on you know, on achieving a different system. And mending does that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's so, so important to achieve this uh, shift and also to come back somehow to, um, you know, the understanding and the importance of um, taking care of the resources that we already have. Um, actually, I had a, I have a story from last week when I went to fix this um, uh, jumpsuit that I'm wearing right now. And uh, the, the repairing service almost didn't want to do the repairment. So I had to explain how important it is for me that I get this piece fixed no matter what. And uh, yeah. So from that perspective, I think we really, we really need to somehow come back to our senses. Um, I agree. I definitely agree. I also have to be honest with you. I feel that, you know, I've, I've actually got a whole category of clothes that I don't mend uh, because they're so broken. Um, but each tear is their signature. It's a decoration that just as important as any diamond brooch is you know that cigarette burnt that happened you know when I was wildly in love or having the best fun of my life I mean you know those those signatures those scars I want to keep exactly you talk in the book about the Rana Plaza collapse and uh, you say something that stuck with me it's not simply the chemicals and toxicants that affect our environment and pollute the clothes we wear that are harmful to us. The lack of human dignity, the chemistry that is passed on in the act of suing something, the conditions of those hands at work should feel just as toxic to our bodies and our souls. And it sounds almost um, uh, in a way a spiritual way of viewing things, is it for you about respecting these makers' work or is there something more behind it? No, there's no more behind it. So I'm a profoundly atheist person. So this is not to do with any religious dogma or, or anything of the sort. And I, weirdly enough, don't even necessarily consider myself spiritual. Um, but I have a very strong connection with my gut, with my instinct, somehow more my gut, which is near to my heart than my brain. That's where I think. That's where I process. I reason with my feelings. And my feelings have always told me that just as I have respect for myself and for those people immediately close to me that are my family, that same respect, I... Um, I feel for everyone on, on, on earth. 
And I wouldn't treat anybody else differently from that. So I wouldn't, I don't want to wear clothes that are made by people that are suffering. Um, as much as I wouldn't want to sell a piece of clothing made by me when I was suffering, to be honest with you. Um, it's, it's just not, not the way that I want to, to operate. And it's important, I believe, that we, um, we reclaim those connections. Uh, again, the fashion industry, I repeat, designed itself to be as exploitative as possible. Uh, so that very few people could make massive gains. That has included removing the model from our shoes and bringing it elsewhere. So I'm not saying that in Italy or in the UK or in Germany or anywhere where there was a fashion industry in the past, there wasn't any exploitation. I am saying that we could scrutinize that exploitation because it was happening on our doorstep. So while up until 30, 40 years ago, everyone knew somebody that worked in the fashion industry. So therefore they could ask, are you, are you being treated fairly? I mean, we would know. Um, we don't know what's happening in Cambodia, Vietnam, China, uh, Bangladesh, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, because we've been deliberately separated from the people in those supply chain. What fashion revolution does and the job that I have put onto you know, the, the, the people like myself work on is protect those individuals and the resources that we all share. This can only come with scrutiny, transparency and visibility. And for me, it is absolutely important that, you know, the people that work to make the things we love or we become attached to have an opportunity to uh, lead dignified lives and that we don't wear clothes that come to their expense. Um, so that's, you know, that's really behind that kind of a chemistry, that sort of a story, that whether you like it or not, things get passed. Uh, you know, time passes and we learn from our ancestry, but time is also linear. And so touching these materials um, brings us in contact with the people who make them. Yeah, absolutely. You found it... Aesthetica, it was at, uh, the first eco area at London Fashion Week, um, which you curated. And uh, this is also where you met your co-founder of Fashion Revolution, Carrie Sommers. Yes. Can you uh, share how it all started with Fashion Revolution? So Aesthetica had been going for quite a while. Aesthetica started in 20, 2006. And Carrie was one of the um, uh, kind of second lot of exhibitors, but one of the most successful with her brand, Pachakuki. She, I think she joined in 2007 or 8, I can't remember. But she, you know, that is where we met. Aesthetica was very much a hub. You know, a whole bunch of people met there. Um, you know, brands were formed, relationships were established. So it was really, you know, in the UK, that's where we talked. So when Rana Plaza happened, I think it's fair to say that we all in that community felt livid, outraged and angry. And there were a lot of conversations, you know, what are we going to do? Something needs to happen. And Carrie had a bath. <laughs> and when Carrie had a bath, she suddenly dreamt up the whole kind of fashion revolution, which was originally meant to be on the anniversary of Rana Plaza. She called me straight away and I think, you know, that the, the idea changed pretty radically from a commemorative event to a campaign, you know, a radical campaign to change things. But obviously, 
you know, it was the goodwill of the team that joined us straight away. It was the participation of our international country coordinators that then gave shape to the revolution. You know, when Carrie and I started it, we had zero idea that it was going to be this successful. And I tend to be hyper creative and generally have ideas that are a bit bonkers. So, you know, to, to be uh, so welcome within the, the kind of, you know, the whole community really, and to see this real desire to take part and to make fashion revolution work for all of us was what made fashion revolution. I think the main point of fashion revolution and the reason why I'm the most proud of fashion revolution is that, yeah, I mean, there is an element of the importance of its founders um, inevitably, but it's not, you know, neither for the central team nor for the global team. That is really not the focus. Each team has their founder, each team have their revolutionaries, each and every one of us is as important as the other. And that's the great beauty of fashion revolution, that we operate very differently wherever we are in the world, but we operate for that community in that area. It's not us saying, okay, well now we do this. We all work differently. So it's, it's a profound, um, in my way, in my opinion, from, from where I stand, how I see it, it really does celebrate the, you know, the people that, that have joined. And in that sense, uh, that was also the start of fashion revolution because it would never have been what it is without that um, you know, uh, glorious and amazing richness of different people and different experiences. That's incredible. And you are making a real difference in the industry with it, with um, hundreds of brands uh, taking part, millions of people each year. And um, you have um, an approach um, which is very a bit different than uh, that of other organizations. You say on your website, you try to be bold, provocative, accessible. And, uh, and this, at the same time, you avoid negative protesting, victimizing, naming, and shaming. Why do you think, why do you believe this is the right approach? Actually, to be honest with you, we're, slight, we're becoming more vocal. So this was very much the beginning because we come from the industry. You know, pretty much everybody that is in fashion revolution is in one way connected with the industry. I mean, I still work in the fashion industry, although of course I'm an outsider. I've placed myself in a position to be an outsider, but all of us are industry people. So at the end of the day, we love fashion. You know, and the, the, the reason that makes us campaigners is because we don't want to taint ourselves with practices that we disagree with in, in an industry we love. So that is the, the kind of the, the first thing. To be honest with you, um, our stance is changing a little bit over the years. You'll find we name much more than we ever did. Mm -hmm. And occasionally we do if we feel that we have to. I guess... I always explain it like this. So at Fashion Revolution, we challenge the mainstream, and this is the work that we do with our Fashion Transparency Index, with our social media accounts. When we talk about who made my fabric, when we ask who made my clothes, we're challenging your mainstream industry, but we champion the radicals because at the same time, we are so profoundly aware that you can't just sit there and complain. You need to show the solutions and the world is full 
of brilliant creatives and non-creatives that are coming up with the right solutions. So with our Fashion Open Studio initiative, for instance, we really promote those young designers, whether they are in you know, Nigeria, whether they are in Argentina, you know, we really want to showcase their work. And same with young designers that come up with systems and ideas and new ways to create and to dispose in many ways in, in, this, in, in the fashion industry. So that's fashion revolution. We don't just sit to berate. We don't just exist to give brands a hard time. We do but we always exist to say okay mainstream move to the side for a second here make space because we've got tiny solutions that nevertheless could be implementable and replicable for a better future so it's the balance between the absolutely two. yeah i think it's a very important balance and you need to in the end do both and celebrate the good examples yeah. out there as well um, and you started more with the human uh, side of things, uh, the yes. side of the makers, and then you moved more into the sustainability aspect. Is that correct? I don't see a difference between an environmental and a social sustainability, and I never have. So we've been talking about intersectionality when people didn't, when the word isn't there. Actually, we didn't use the word in intersectionality, but for the first three years, because we were born as a result of the Rana Plaza disaster, apparently the most immediate apparent focus for us was social. But there is no difference between social and environmental to a certain extent. I mean, you know, we are talking about garment workers that are working in very precarious working conditions, both from a social and an environmental point of view. So the two things were always connected. For us, it was more a question of capacity. So, you know, we were little, we were small, we had to focus. As we grew and the minute we did, we started talking about environment and social as a whole. So, you know, we, we, you know, for us, this has been very, very, very core to our conversation from the start that the two things are, are interlinked and inseparable. Yeah, absolutely. And Ursula, you're involved in the True Cost movie. For me, this movie has been very fundamental in changing and in opening my eyes for the issues associated with the fashion industry. And I know it has been for so many people. Why do you think watching this movie is literally life-changing for so many people out there? Well, I would have to say, let's give credit where credit is due. Andrew is a brilliant director. He's a great communicator and he's a person of huge empathy. And that comes out in the movie. Um, there is also a certain freshness because, because Rana Plaza was, you know, very recent. You know, the, the filming of the True Cost started almost immediately after the Rana Plaza disaster. So to a certain extent, there was that there's a raw anger, there is a freshness, and there is a conversation that was brand new at the time. So in a way, that film also established partly a language. You know, I remember when I spoke for, for True Cost thinking, I'm not going to water down what I'm saying, I'm, I'm going to be accurate. So it, it provides a lot of information, which isn't just the story of what happened, but it's really 
a true beginning of a philosophy that, that kind of enlarged from, from the people that were invited to speak on, on that documentary. So that is its longevity. To be honest with you, that there hasn't been anything quite as powerful since is, I don't know if it's a testament to Andrew's brilliance or if it is a testament to the fact that the, you know, that the conversation hasn't developed any further, but I find it extraordinary that there hasn't been um, a follow-up. I mean, you know, the true cost is gonna be nearly 10 years old very soon. Yes. So it seems insane, um, but, but obviously it carries the power of the, uh, Oh God, I don't know the word in English. Testa dariete, you know, when you open a door with a with a big yeah, punch. I guess it was yeah. it was that big punch, and it still carries that power for sure. I totally see it. I, to be honest with you, I haven't watched it for a few years, but I see a glimpse of it occasionally, and just the music, it packs a punch, and it will keep on doing that. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's something that yeah it, you. You can always also go back to if you need an eye opening. And um, we've been living in a pandemic for two years now, and it has affected the whole world and it has affected the fashion industry in a very big way. Millions of people in the countries where fashion is produced, mostly like Bangladesh, have um, gone out of work, uh, have not been um, paid. How did the pandemic affect uh, your work at Fashion Revolution? Um, well, uh, I can't really reply that because I think everybody's going to be different in terms of all of our 94 teams would have been affected differently. So I can only really speak for myself. On many ways, when we pivoted in 2020 and we moved online, for us, it was like coming home because Fashion Revolution started as an online campaign. So it was a really easy way for us to re-engage. So that was positive in many ways. Um, and it, at least Fashion Revolution Week in 2020 had that sense of, you know, we're all in this together. And Rana Plaza came back to my mind very much when, you know, to see how garment workers were again the focus of the conversation, again because of how they were being abused and not paid or made to work in extremely dangerous situations. There are things about the pandemic that I found interesting from a personal point of view. So the first one was that in the UK, um, the Leicester scandal, you know, and the realization that fast fashion is on your doorstep. Cheap fashion is on your doorstep. Exploitation of workers is on your doorstep. And, you know, we tend to think it's far away, but it's not. Um, the fact that luxury brands were also involved in not paying their garment workers, but that wasn't discussed quite as widely, was also very interesting. You know, again, this constant distinction between the two without the realization that the both are guilty of very different crimes. I mean, when we're talking about the welfare of garment workers, the luxury industry doesn't necessarily pay any better. When we're looking at the quality of some of those products, there was an interesting article um, that I read a couple of days ago about you know, luxury t-shirts, the vast difference in price, the zero difference in, in terms of, of quality of, of those material and that showmanship, which reinforces the fact that things are, you know, it is really the entirety of the fashion industry. 
I was very interested in how people re-looked at their habits during COVID and, you know, looking at their own wardrobe. But for me, the lockdown, for the sales of my book, it was brilliant because many of the things I was writing about were way more niche before COVID and became much, much more, um, you know, um, people were more aware of them afterwards. So the book, again, presented more solutions to more people than I would ever have dreamt of. I really thought it was going to be much, much more niche. But above all, COVID acted as yet again, one of these moments, magnifying lens, everything that we're doing wrong as people. So I think we all drew very different conclusions. And some of us, like myself, privilege to own my own home, to not have tiny children that I had to home educate. I mean, I could indulge in, you know, two years of thinking, which I very, very definitely did. Absolutely ready for my second book, by the way, after Rumble of the Learnings. But we mustn't remember how much people suffered. We mustn't remember how our garment workers, our supply chain workers were exploited. We mustn't forget our next door neighbors who you know, were, were you know, losing family members. I mean, I had a, a, an incredibly lucky time and I will always be grateful for having been given this time. But COVID was experienced in different ways by all of us and uh, you know, on a global scale, it would be presumptuous for me to be able to say how it affected the whole of fashion revolution. Yeah, I understand. But I can definitely tell you how Brexit affected yeah. fashion revolution. Please. <laughs> That's for sure. Mm. But COVID is a bit wider. Mm. Yeah, well, it has definitely been eye-opening in so many ways, but also to our privilege, as you as you said before. Um, and Ursula, you mentioned already your brushes earlier in our conversation. Um, I remember you talking about them in your book that you've been uh, collecting them uh, for years and uh, you use them often on your clothing, for example, to hide uh, holes in your um, beloved uh, clothing pieces. Uh, do you have a signature piece of clothing, jewelry, and what does it mean for you? Okay, so I do have a signature piece of jewellery, um, which is this necklace that I wear on my neck. It's a necklace mm-hmm. all the time. My mother gave it to me when I was 40. Very beautiful. Ah, and I see it. It's so it's, beautiful. It's very definitely a signature. Um, I tend to keep jewellery and wear it all the time. You know, I'm, I, I really do love my jewellery to the point that I've actually, I've never done this before, but I've... I've um, agreed to model for uh, a duo designer, a, a fashion designer I really respect and a jeweler I really respect. And I, I, I accepted to model just on the love of, of mm-hmm. the jewelry. I hate being photographed, filmed. Mm-hmm. So it was really, it must have been very special. I couldn't possibly say that about clothes because I have way too many clothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just today I was posting about the fact that, you know, the lockdown restrictions are about to be over in the UK. And that one of the things that I've loved the most about lockdown was that, you know, my wardrobe became like a giant dressing up box and things that I normally would have worn only once, maybe for evening, I started wearing every day, like the skirt I'm wearing today. Yeah. Ah, so cool. But now I wear it once a month. So, you know, those, those were the main sort of 
uh, takeaways for me. But, you know, my clothes are a constant joy and playfulness. So there isn't one that's more me than others. There's concepts that are me. So this concept of the broken clothes, the fact that I like wearing evening wear as, as everyday wear, the fact that I am a mentor to some of the best upcycling designers in the world and have been for a long time. So I have been privy to buying, you know, at a fraction of, of designer price, some of the most beautiful, beautiful clothes in the world. In fact, I'm now waiting for a bag from one of my favorite designers. She's called Gabriela Skoukas. She's made me a little crochet bag. So, you know, that, that is really top, 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 top privilege. So how could I possibly choose one out of all of this joy that I have around me? That's wonderful. And I love, I saw your post today and I love the idea about wearing your favorite pieces and not saving them for anything special, but I mean, every day. Um, I'm it can be special. Yeah. I and, mean, you know, some of these clothes have lasted since the 1930s. They yeah. were my grandmother and I'm 55. What do you mean? I'm not going to wear them because they're <laughs> great. I'm definitely going to break before they do. Yeah, they absolutely. Wear. But I think it's a rule for anybody, regardless of age. So. <laughs> And, um, and lastly, uh, going back to your book, um, and because we're in January, at the end, you talk um, about the month of January, and there's a quote um, going like that. What if instead of telling ourselves that we need to become a whole new person, we simply dedicate January to liking ourselves the way we are? Self-esteem is closely tied to our tendencies for overconsumption on so many different levels. So what if instead of new year, new me, the mantra is one of contentment? And uh, in that sense, do you think the biggest change that needs to happen is change in our minds? Yes. Um, and this is this is a lot of what I will be tackling in, in the second book. I mean, you know, so in, in, in my second book, I really want to talk about fashion, about mental health, about us being women in this industry and in this world, really, because fashion as, uh, uh, you know, a, an expression of not just our times. Unfortunately, fashion expresses way more than just the historical time. It also reflects who we are and female fashion reflects a lot of the subjugation um, that we have suffered and the present fashion system reflects a lot of the colonialism and a lot of the imperialism that we have experienced in terms of our history. So uh, this profound lack of self-confidence, this having to look in a certain way, this denial of um, who we actually are for real um, is intrinsic to this industry and something that we need to 100% defy because again, it doesn't fit the purpose that we need clothes to fit. Our clothes should be about our confidence, our best self, but our best self is not determined by the editor of Vogue, nor is it by the, our best self is only determined by our best self and that's us and it should be unjudged. And so, um, and our clothes should not, should just reflect that. 
what we like, what we want to show about who we are. That's it. Um, and so the the you know this this constant having to look different, be different, um, correspond is the antithesis really of of what a joyful human and a joyful planet should should be like. Absolutely. That's so beautifully said. And uh, now I can't wait to read your new book. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm literally at the treatment. It's going to be it's going to be years of this of this day. And, and it takes a long time. You know, the love clubs last, as I said, it, you know, when it came out in 2021, it was very pertinent. But I was writing it in 2019. It wasn't even 20, maybe even at the end of 2018. Mm -hmm. So it really was, um, you know, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then that's okay. Good things take take time. Exactly. Um, with the Fashion Act currently being discussed in New York, the new legislation which is going to require more transparency um, for fashion companies, there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel for more regulations for the fashion industry. What do you think is the single biggest thing that can make the fashion industry more sustainable? There isn't one single big thing. There never is. It's like it's never about, I mean, you know, unfortunately, this is exactly what's wrong with our society, isn't it? That it's always one big person at the top or one single thing. How can it be about the single when there's 7.5, however many, 7.8 billion of us? You know, it, it never is. So the fashion pact is not strict enough, um, but as it is legislation, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, the fashion industry is not regulated, it badly needs regulation because it affects our health. In fact, I would say even more, it affects our physical health and it affects our mental health as well. So it double needs to be regulated, but it isn't. We are seeing move towards transparency, regulation, um, which is, of course, incredibly important but as an example you know we always talk about living wages um and we don't talk about the importance of garment workers to be unionized now those two things need to go hand in hand so if i tell you oh it's living wages somebody else will tell you no it's unionization so you know and again you know how how do we talk about the 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 social versus the chemical versus the pollution i mean you know there is no such thing as one thing it's changing an entire system it's changing a system that has been in place for you know centuries if not millennia um, therefore it requires uh, a very astute and holistic look at the system itself what we do right now is that we just put a plaster on top of that one thing because we think that that one thing might be the thing that solves it all but then of course another thing comes up and then we put another plaster on top of that thing so unless we treat the whole we are not going to solve the problem so we need to treat the whole system and it's made of hundreds if not thousands of different things each that needs to become better yeah absolutely um Ursula, do you have a favorite um, book, podcast, or any other type of resource that um, you think people should definitely check out? 
yet again, I am not the one person about the one thing. Um, I'm so curious. I'm so, 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 so curious that I just hop on anything that tickles my fancy. What I can tell you is that it's not where you go, um, but it's the fact that you want to go there. So, I mean, basically, well, I'm actually going to be starting a Patreon soon. So whoever wants to find out more about those things, join me on Patreon. I do write them down, but I'm very chaotic. That's amazing. Uh, what I'm, you know, what, so anyone that follows me on my Instagram feed, for instance, will know exactly what I'm reading, what I'm following, what I'm listening to. But I am a... Um, like an octopus with millions and millions of tentacles and for each tentacle there's those little round things as well all of those are active in me um, because I'm very curious so it's not that podcast or the book or whatever it's the action of wanting to find out more people ask me all the time you know oh what do you think about this brand doing this is that a greenwash or what do you think about greenwashes in overall and I always say my opinion doesn't matter it's you developing yours that matter so it's your search towards your favorite podcast that will make sense your uh, interpretation of a book you find online that will make sense because at the end of the day those opinions are what will keep you attached to this conversation and make you do a little bit more each time so again my list is huge <laughs> there's loads of places where you can find them including at the back of my book um but what i will really sorry um, what I really celebrate is other people being curious and finding their own their own places to go and then come and tell me please that's wonderful I'm definitely going to share uh, the links for the people who do not follow you yet in the show notes so everybody can uh, follow up and um, finally well maybe this question covers a little bit with the previous one but um, I wanted to ask do you have a quote um, or any advice that you've been given on war or want to give to others that you live by? So it's um, uh, the owner of a fabric shop many, many years ago told me, sometimes we need to let go to get a better hold. And that has been very useful for me because for instance, right now, there is so much we need to unlearn, so much we need to let go in order to get a better hold of our future, in order to get a better hold of our culture, in order to get a better hold of how we treat each other. We need to treat each other as equals. In order to get there, so much we need to chuck away. So this quote that was given to me probably in my early 20s is more relevant than ever right now. I love it. Well, Ursula, thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you so much for uh, sharing. And um, I can't wait for your new book. And I wish you a wonderful evening and weekend. You too. And um, I hope to stay in touch. And thank you for the interview. Thank you for the lovely questions. Thank you so much for joining. As always, please follow the podcast on Spotify if you haven't and share it with your friends. Also join the conversation on Instagram and Facebook, the sustainability issue. And let me know what else you, you would like to hear. Until next time.